This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello and welcome everyone to this fourth panel session of the Caldor Centre's annual conference on addressing migration and displacement in the face of climate change. My name is Sanjula Rarasinha, and I'm also an affiliate of the Centre. Let me begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which the Caldor Centre stands, the Betagal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my real pleasure today to moderate this panel, which is titled, Does the Data on Climate Change and Disaster Displacement Add Up? It's increasingly recognized that there's a need to build better data and knowledge on different facets of human mobility associated with disasters and climate change so that we can promote evidence-based policies and practice and better resist and protect people that are affected. If you've had the chance to attend any of the earlier panels, then you'll already be familiar with some of the common conceptual categories of human mobility that occur in this context migration, displacement, planned relocation, and immobility. Understanding the full magnitude of these types of movements and their different dimensions is still very much a work in progress. But it is fair to say that the knowledge we have today is much greater than it was a decade ago. So for instance, in terms of the geography of movements, we know that the vast majority takes place within countries. Displacement and migration also occur on different temporal scales. If you consider evacuation as an example, then there are multiple possible scenarios. For instance, some people may return to their homes soon after the emergency ends. Others may return a week or a month later after their damaged houses have been repaired. But for others who are in a protracted situation, the only viable options may be relocation or movement elsewhere because of the scale of destruction or ongoing risks. We also know that some people experience different forms of human mobility. So people may be displaced year on year by flooding and continue to go back to their homes to face the same predicament. And others, they become internally displaced in the context of a drought and then decide to move across borders, migrating for reasons of desire or because they've been affected again by another disaster or conflict. And finally, we know that there are challenges to differentiating between migration and displacement, certainly conceptually, but also very much so in practice. And all of these aspects the scale, the geography, the temporality and grounded realities have implications for policies and programs. Policies and programs that are relevant for helping people remain where they wish to stay, to helping people adapt and migrate, whether it's within their countries or cross borders, and for protecting and finding solutions for people who are displaced. So with that context in mind, I'm really pleased to introduce our distinguished panelists today, 
who are going to tell us more about what data is available and what we already know about internal and cross-border human mobility. The data that we don't have, and so what we still need to learn, and what's being done to address some of our knowledge gaps. So with us today, we have Vicente Ansolini, who leads the Global Monitoring and Reporting Team at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre and coordinates the production of the Global Report on Internal Displacement. We have Tala Malala, who is the Secretary General of the Samoan Red Cross and has held that role since 2001. Her role also encompasses advising on disaster and climate risk mitigation and management. We have Andrea Milan, who is a data manager for the Migration Governance Indicators Project at IOM's Global Migration Data Analysis Centre, and whose expertise includes the connections between migration, environment, and climate change. And we have Dr. Kira Finke, who is the head of the Centre for Climate and Foreign Policy at the German Council on Foreign Relations, and is also affiliated with the Potsdam Institute Climate Impact Research. So before we get started, let me just highlight a few housekeeping points. The session will run for about one hour and it will include about 40 minutes of moderated discussion between the speakers. This will be followed by roughly 15 minutes of question and answers. So I encourage you, as we're speaking with the panelists, to please put your, put your questions in the Q&A and we'll make sure we try and get to at least some of them at the end of the session. So Kira, if I may, I'd like to begin with you. Before we even start to consider some of the human mobility dimensions associated with disasters and climate change, it would be great to kind of clarify the relationship between climate change and human mobility, because it can be sometimes quite complex. So could you please just start off by explaining just how climate change affects disasters? and how we actually know that climate change is in fact causing some of the hazards that underpin disasters. Over to you, Kira. Thank you, Sanjula, uh, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. I'm very excited for this discussion. Yeah, attribution science, uh, which is the science that tries to establish this, this link uh, between um, climate change uh, and singular events, uh, such as disasters, um, has really improved over the last decade. So we know a lot more now about the increases of, of likelihoods of disasters to occur under current warming levels. So at current warming levels, what I'm talking about is about 1, 1 1.2 degrees of warming. So we are already in a changed climate at the moment. And this has led to um, a change in frequency and intensity of extreme events. So maybe I can just point out some examples how we can approximate ourselves to this. Um, for example, in Australia, um, if you look at the wildfire season um, of 2020, um, this has been made about 30% more likely because of uh, climate change. Um, the, the bleaching events that uh, occurred in the Great Barrier Reef in 2016 that uh, bleached large parts of the, of the reef were made um, 175 times more likely um, 
in the sense that the the months in which um, these events occurred were significantly significantly more hotter than um, than during a normal climate, so to say. When we look at the US and the, the extreme heat that we witnessed um, over the past year, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, we see that um, these were made more hotter. So the intensity of the event increased. So it was about two degrees hotter than it would have been in a normal climate, so to say. So a climate without anthropogenic warming. And they were made more likely, much more likely. And this, this increases as we go further into warming. So if temperatures increases to up to two degrees, then this type of event, which normally occurs only once every thousand years, would occur maybe every 10 years. So this, um, this is a significant increase in likelihood of occurrence. Um, also, if we look abroad, if we look at the drought in Syria that preceded the outbreaks of, of violence there, and that was the worst uh, drought on the on the temperature records. This was made three times more likely without climate change. So um, with climate change, of course. So this all of this put taken together, um, you can say that many of these events probably wouldn't have occurred, or the likelihood would have decreased significantly, in, or they would have occurred in a in a manner that was less uh, intense if we had not already um, pushed our uh, mean temperature above what it is normally. So um, maybe turning to one one more set of extremes, which are tropical cyclones, um, which I think are uh, regarding displacement very, very important. These are much more difficult to attribute because um, as you can imagine, this uh, singular events, they, they don't occur so often. So you don't have so many reference points in your um, data set. However, um, we know that um, the severest tropical cyclones, for example, like um, in the Eastern Hemisphere, in Haiyan, um, in the Pacific, um, Cyclone Winston, um, in, in the Atlantic, um, with Cyclone Irma. So these, these uh, superstorms that were kind of record-breaking, they all occurred in the last decade. So we've seen an in, in increased intensity of storms um, that we are witnessing at the moment. So this is um, this is very concerning. At the same time, uh, we are experiencing rising sea levels. So the storm surges that uh, occur alongside these storms, which then cause a lot of the destruction, a lot of the deaths uh, associated with the storms, also a lot of the displacement. Um, these are also becoming much more severe because these storms are happening on top of rising sea levels. Um, meaning that the, the storm surges reach further inland. So um, nevertheless, at the same time, um, the disaster risk infrastructure in many countries has improved. So if we take, for example, the, the case of Bangladesh, we see sometimes more extreme tropical cyclones, but less um, deaths associated with these cyclones because of improved um, disaster risk infrastructure. However, we must be aware, of course, that there's a limit to our capacity as humanity to adapt to ever rising extremes. So I want to make this point clear as well. So one, one is, yes, um, through improved resilience, through improved infrastructure, uh, we can save lives and we can protect people in their homes, as, as you mentioned in your, your opening remarks. 
but also there's a clear limit um, when it comes to uh, warming that is above two degrees, um, where we see um, extreme events that are becoming unmanageable and are uh, compromising the ability of sustaining our civilization. These are very severe um, outlooks, especially as we know that um, the IPCC has, um, has shown that we will definitely have a warming of 1.5 degrees, so it will definitely get, get warmer. Um, and all pathways where we stop warming at 1.5 degrees are associated with um, negative emissions, meaning we would have to take CO2 somehow out of the atmosphere, for example, through massive afforestation. So what this means, and this is my, my closing um, remark here at this point, um, is that before, uh, yeah, before we can sort of stabilize at, uh, at a temperature level, it will get worse. So we have to prepare for uh, worse wildfires, worse droughts, worse uh, flooding events and such. So what we're seeing now, which is already quite concerning, um, both uh, in, the, in, the, in the Western and the Eastern hemisphere, um, is, um, is very much um, problematic. And we have to get ready now to adapt for even more problematic conditions while also mitigating the cause of all of this, which is global greenhouse gas emissions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kira, and especially for grounding us in the science as we get started and highlighting the ways in which different types of hazards are increasing in terms of its scale and intensity, um, and also just highlighting the limits of adaptation as well. And so, if I can now turn to you um, to kind of consider one type of human mobility and the data on one type of human mobility. The IGMC's um, global report on internal displacement is a key source of information on internal displacement. And in 2021, your report focused specifically on internal displacement in a changing climate. And that report showed that at the end of 2020, or during 2020, that there were over 30 million people who were displaced newly, or there were 30 million new displacements over the course of the year that was associated with disasters. And that was the highest number ever recorded. How does IDMC actually compile these estimates? And what are some of the limitations in the estimates that you compile? Um, and in that context, what are some of the gaps in our knowledge? And what do we need to do to address them? Over to you, Sante. Thank you, Sanjula. And good morning and afternoon to everyone. Um, Yes, yeah, so um, just to start, uh, does displacement data add up, adds up? That's kind of the main question, right, of this panel. And uh, the answer is, uh, let's say, it does, but there are many gaps. Uh, and I'm going to show you quickly how uh, we monitor displacement to also uh, uh, talk about a bit the gaps that we face. Um, do you see my screen? Yeah, great. Um, so. Uh, in IDMC, we uh, collect. So we don't collect data. I just wanted to also highlight that we really are the aggregators of data. So this, our work wouldn't be possible uh, without the support from Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, uh, governments, disaster management agencies, uh, UN agencies, etc. So we really 
uh, are the aggregator, right, of, of these estimates. And we do so for conflict and violence, disasters, and whenever we have information also on development projects. And, and here, of course, we're talking more on climate, so it refers to disasters. And um, we obtain this information from a wide range of sources. Um, Post-disasters needs assessment, surveys, registration data, uh, and actually, when we, and there are many in, in many instances, we don't have uh, official data, government data, or UN data. Uh, we uh, scan media reports, and sometimes even we've done satellite imagery analysis. So really, the the this part of the slide, really the center here, is about compiling all this documentation and using also technology. We also help ourselves with machine learning, and we do also a lot of, of course, all of our validation is, is, is human validation. And uh, we then organize a series of terms no, that, we, that we compile, including IDPs, evacuees, forced to flee. I will get back to that in a second. But also we, we use proxy data like, like housing destruction. And uh, so this is really an exercise of validation and triangulation and aggregation of the data that ultimately helps us uh, coming up with best estimates. Uh, one of the challenges, however, is that depending on the region and depending on the country, we have different sources of data. Fortunately, uh, and as you can see in this slide, uh, we have a, an, an increasing number of disaster uh, national disaster risk management agencies that collect this information, uh, and uh, also local government and also other government entities that collect this information, but as you can see in this slide, depends really on uh, the region, it depends on the country, so it's not consistent. And, and really a part of this exercise of compiling the estimates is really making them consistent and, and also not to inflate them, so really to make them conserve, as conservative as possible. Uh, so we have to deal with the challenge of sources, but we also have to deal with the challenge of uh, terms, no? because this information uh, is, is sometimes we receive data on displaced, evacuated, relocated, and as I said before, when no data is available, we take houses destroyed and apply a, a national average household size to come up with best estimates. And this is how really this is aggregated in the overall estimate. Um, I'm gonna stop sharing here my screen just to talk more about, about some of the challenges. So this is more of the technical side of really aggregating data and coming up with best estimates. But um, as, as you pointed out, Sanjula, uh, uh, we have uh, high figures of new, of new displacements, new movements throughout the year when it comes to disasters. But at the end of the year, the estimate is extremely low as compared to the new displacement. So ultimately, we're facing a major gap here, which is, uh, I would say, like the second gap I would like to highlight here is really the duration of displacement. We lack time series data on this phenomenon, uh, especially because many of the disaster management agencies uh, just do assessments uh, in, at one point in time, and we lose track of how long people were displaced. And this way, then it's very difficult for us to come up with a, an aggregate uh, total number of IDPs by disasters at the end of the year. Um, uh, so this is a major gap that we, we were confronting. The, the second one that you also pointed out is really, and, and we're getting better at it, but, but uh, at the global level, but we also call for you know, every person and institution collecting data at the local level to also uh, differentiate that is really preemptive movements versus uh, during and post-disaster movements. Because this really, as Kira mentioned, uh, is, a, is, a, is a form of resilience, no? um, but, but we 
better to really understand that. And uh, evacuating from a, from a cyclone doesn't mean that your house is going to be destroyed. So also we need to really have time series data and also a, 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 the differentiation between preemptive movements and, and during and post-disaster displacement. Um, well, uh, Kira mentioned it uh, uh, on the issue of climate change. I wanted to also raise that. It remains very difficult to draw, draw, draw causal relations. Also, there are other factors at play, like uh, uh, unsustainable urbanization, erosion, land degradation. So to really unpack these drivers is, is extremely difficult, and the data sets that we obtain do not allow to, to really do this. And a last challenge I wanted to highlight is uh, the issue of slow onset hazards, because these, of course, are uh, related to climate change, like drought, sea level rise, coastal erosion. But uh, it's not only just about slow onset hazards, it's about the relation with sudden onset hazards, because uh, we can, we can uh, for example, uh, observe uh, rising sea levels and, and, and slow onset coastal erosion, but uh, it, when a cyclone hits and a storm surge hits, it really aggravates a problem that was already there and then forces people to, to, to flee. So um, it, it remains very difficult and the data on slow onset hazards is very scarce. Uh, we have some data for droughts for some countries, uh, mostly in Africa, uh, but this is another major gap that we are confronting. So I will leave it there and uh, yeah, we can continue the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vicente, and especially for kind of highlighting this point about new displacement and the kind of robustness, relative robustness of your data on new displacement as compared to the, the robustness of your data on protracted displacement associated with disasters, because that really is a clear gap in terms of thinking through what types of solutions we need for those who are displaced. On the new displacement number, can I just quickly come back to you just to clarify? Those numbers are, can include the one person being displaced more than once within a, within a year. Is that right? Correct. Correct. That's why we don't, new displacement doesn't equal people because, uh, uh, for example, last year in, in, in Nicaragua, we, we saw hurricanes Eta and Yota hitting basically the same area, right? Uh, and, and it was very likely that people living there in the affected areas was displaced twice by these two events in the course of a single year. It is impossible for us at the global level, and I would argue even at the national level, to really obtain individual level data to come up with, like to really come up with uh, estimates on people uh, displaced. So that's why we talk, we use the concept of new displacement, uh, that it can be uh, a bit misleading or difficult to understand, but it's really important to differentiate because it really shows the dynamics, right? Uh, so this figure uh, seems very, very high, but it's also uh, cases of secondary and even tertiary displacement within that same calendar year. So it really, this figure helps us really to, to build an argument around the dynamics of displacement, how, how especially disaster displacement is highly dynamic, and even sometimes overlap with conflict settings, like IDPs being displaced in camps and so on. So this count in, in, in the estimates of conflict displacement and disaster displacement when relevant. Great. No, thank you very much for that clarification. Andrea, if I can now shift to you a little bit. Um, in many ways, the data that we have on internal displacement is perhaps the most robust, notwithstanding some of these limitations that Vicente has already identified. Um, by contrast, our data and knowledge on cross-border mobility associated with disasters and, and climate changes is much more limited. 
Can I ask you, what is our state of global data on cross-border displacement and migration associated with climate change and disasters? Over to you, Andrea. Thank you, Sandrine, and thanks a lot for the, for the invitation to, to speak today. Um, well, at the, when we look at cross-border displacement, um, to simplify a little bit, we see some of the same issues that Vicenta has highlighted very well over the past few minutes. Uh, that tend to be exacerbated by the fact that when it comes to cross-border displacement, you're basically looking at two different data systems, because the data system or way in which collect data can be collected in the country of origin of whoever is displaced, and then um, the same issue needs to be done at destination. And these, um, so we don't know too much from the quantitative point of view at the global level on how many people are cross-borders, uh, and mostly for two sets of reasons. One is the methodological challenges. Again, Vicente flagged some of those, but the, one of the issues he flagged, so the problem that it's hard to really find good data on duration and distance of, of displacement is even aggravated by the fact that um, there are no data collection standards. So for instance, what can happen is that there is a, even a relatively long time lag between the time when the person is initially displaced and then by the time when the person reaches a, and crosses a border, and we really lose, so to say, the information on the person on the way. And um, the second, um, sorry, and a related issue is that very often cross-border displacement um, happens also for a set of other reasons that sort of uh, create um, interrelated drivers of cross-border movement. And very often this cross-border movement is recorded later on. And so we really have a hard time going back to the original displacement and going to the point that um, Vicente highlighted at the end, really the individual level. It's really hard to follow the individual level. So this makes it hard to have uh, reliable estimates. And another thing that I would add is this complicates um, or makes it really hard for us to get a sense of some of the key um, issues associated with displacement that we need to get a better understanding of if you want to design good policies, which is gender dimensions and age dimensions. These are some of the issues that, on which at the Global Migration Data Analysis Center I am, we're trying to strengthen our, our work because we really do not know much in those, on those key issues. Um, just to uh, end with a, with, on a positive note, I do, however, think that there are, uh, there's a, a growing literature in this field. There are many interested uh, case studies. And even when we look at it from a pure uh, data perspective, um, increasingly we see that official sources, uh, for instance, of humanitarian visas by countries of destination of uh, people that are displaced and, and go cross-border. So we can think about the US, Brazil, and Argentina and their data collection practices for Haitians, and uh, they can be used to get a better understanding. Um, but long story short, I think more could be done and I think should be done in upcoming years uh, to draw lessons learned from such case studies and to systematize some of those good practices that we already see. Thanks so much, Andrea. That's, um, that's really helpful. And, and it's also really helpful that you and, and Vicente really highlighted the challenges of following the individual. But this point that you make about case studies and the point that you make about um, 
using immigration processing data to try and understand some of these dynamics is quite important, I think, because I guess that serves as a proxy to get the information that we might need. Um, and, and the question is then what other supplementary information we can use in addition to visas and, and the immigration processing methodologies to understand those cross-border movements. Um, I might come back to you later on just kind of the distinction between migration and displacement um, and the global data on, on kind of gathering the global data set on trying to gather displacement data versus, versus migration data. But I'd like to just move on to Tala now, um, because I've been focusing very much on the global scale, um, the compilations that IDMC makes at the global level and also the global level on cross-border movements. But Tala, um, a lot of displacement and human mobility actually takes place very much at the local and, and community level. And often it's smaller scale hazards and environmental degradation that may threaten people's lives or more often threaten the living conditions that they're used to and, and desire. Um, and these are the issues that are often prompting considerations of movement. You've had extensive experience working with the Red Cross in Samoa, and I wondered whether you could talk a little bit about how local communities that you work with perceive movements in the context of disasters and climate change. Over to you, Tala. Yeah, um, Samoa, like all Pacific Island countries, have their history of human mobility set out in its legends, culture, songs, and traditions. The reasons for human mobility in the past are very similar today due to a hazardous event in search of better living conditions on new land or new island, or in some legends in search of love, as in the case of the legend of Sina and the Eel. All these tales tell of Samoa and the Pacific people's resilience, connection to their land, seas, and environment. Some of the big uh, relocations of communities in Samoa took place when a volcano erupted for seven years in 1905 to 1911 in the big island of Savai. And some of the villages near the volcano relocated from the islands of Savai to the main island of Oporu. And one of the most recent relocation due to a hazardous event was that of the village of Saleapanga, which was affected badly by the 2009 tsunami in Samoa. They relocated to higher grounds inland. And it was difficult for them because they had to leave behind the graves of their loved ones, which is usually in front of the side of their destroyed family homes. To Samoans, as well as other Pacific Islanders, our land is our identity, our heritage. And to lose your land is to lose a large part of that identity. It has potential for certain culture or traditions associated with the land to be lost. In the aftermath of the tsunami, um, the government requested that Samoa Red Cross supply rainwater harvesting systems to 1,200 households living more than 500 meters from the reticulated water supply. And when it became apparent from household vulnerability and capacity assessment surveys that the most vulnerable households were in fact living closer to the reticulated water supply. And we successfully advocated 
to have the participant criteria extended to accommodate vulnerability in a humanitarian context. We developed an integrated risk household vulnerability capacity assessment to identify the people most vulnerable to the impacts of border stress. And this was adapted to the local environment and captured factors such as housing type, water supply, sanitation, lighting, communication, household income and competition, with the inclusion of course of older people and people living with chronic illnesses, disabilities and HIV and AIDS. And the learnings and expertise gained from operations in the wake of the tsunami have been transferred into climate change adaptation and preparedness programming at the national level. Summer Red Cross has become the rainwater harvesting lead implementing agency in the national water and sanitation health sector. And each year is requested by the Samoan government to install rainwater harvesting and ventilated improved pit latrine systems in a number of households. Capturing maximum rainfall is vital to reducing disaster risk and enhancing resilience to climate change by promoting long-term water security where 65% of the country's supply comes from surface water with only 35% from groundwater. Samoa has been fortunate that some of its communities, like Salafanga, as I have mentioned before, have relocated inland to their own village lands, or in the case of Saleaula and Maumasama found the Savai Island to another part of the same country. Despite Samoa and other Pacific countries having had experience in relocation and displacement, the forecasted level of displacement, potential mass migration, and relocation due to sea level rise is one that is daunting and unprecedented. In a worst case scenario where a whole country is relocated to another country, unique challenges will arise. And the Red Cross Society of the receiving country will no, will no doubt. Uh, be on standby to assist. I can just feel the sadness of a Red Cross volunteer providing psychosocial first aid to an elderly person permanently displaced by climate change, fraught with grief that they could not bring the bones of her husband, children, or other loved ones with her to their new location. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tyler, and, and for very much grounding it in the in the perspective that you are seeing every day on the ground and, and your volunteers are seeing every day on the ground. Perhaps I can just follow up um, quickly with you before going back to the other speakers. In, in light of all the work that the, the society is doing in Samoa and all the volunteers are doing in Samoa, you already touched upon on the fact that some of, some of your work is informing preparedness programming um, and other work that's being conducted at the national level. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on that? How is the work and the data that you're collecting, the, the community perspectives that, that you're hearing, um, being used by you to inform policy making and programs at the local level and, and the national level within the country? but also to kind of inform broader regional and international policy making. Um, Samuel Red Cross leads um, uh, a government uh, community disaster and climate risk management program. And this is a program where we train 
all village communities, you know, to be prepared and have the capacity to respond um, to impacts of climate change and disasters. And for this program, we work very closely with um, communities, especially uh, to do household assessment. Um, a lot of time, especially when we started moving into um, communities with governments and all the other organizations, people would come to us in a certain um, uh, community hall or, 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 or space, you know, that community would give us. Hence, we see that there's a lot of people who are not there and the most vulnerable people are not there, people with disabilities, people, um, you know, with low um, status in villages. And why we have started going into households, we believe that, um, you know, if, if we are to go to all the households, uh, and do uh, household assessment, you know, we, we, are, we make sure we don't miss on anyone. And so that was the practice uh, by the Samuel Red Cross. And, and it's also complies with um, the Samuel Red Cross Act, you know, section two of that act 1993, you know, especially where our auxiliary role to our government in the humanitarian field, to prevent and alleviate human suffering wherever they are found. And, and, and the strength of the auxiliary role where uh, we work um, and we had the freedom to move around in, in, in the community and to do humanitarian work uh, to make sure that no one is left behind, like what we're saying now. So um, collecting this data, um, you know, we, and we share through the coordination of the National Disaster Management Office, uh, where, where they share, you know, uh, with all the responding agencies and partners of Samuel Red Cross in all the 14 sectors of our government. And, and the data uh, also uh, supports the coastal infrastructure management plan of government, you know, where they have collected uh, data earlier on for coastal infrastructure mapping you know, especially when looking at borders of the country, storm surge and other hazards, including flood, tidal surge, prone low-lying areas, you know, and all the hazards that are around um, the communities. And uh, pulling this data together, you know, uh, can be shared with all the, in, um, the responding agencies, have, have really supported, you know, uh, our work and informed especially our um, uh, drawing up of our disaster response plans uh, into future uh, impacts of, of disasters as well as climate change. And, and, and this has been very useful, uh, even uh, in village councils and governance structures, um, working uh, through um, um, in, in compliance with their laws and protocols and, and all that is happening within the villages themselves uh, where Red Cross, you know, would come in and help support people that are ostracized because they're going against village rules and all sorts of things. And then it forced them to migrate to undeveloped uh, areas and struggle. So all of this, um, you know, has allowed us to really look into um, uh, developing household data, you know, so that we are, we make sure these people can also access um, all the development work that is brought in by government as well as organizations like the Samoa Red Cross so that 
in, in disasters when they happen, we know where these vulnerable groups are and, and we know that disasters would make them more vulnerable. So um, with the good uh, structure put forward by our government uh, through the leadership of the National Disaster Management Office and, and bringing all the, the, all the, the responding agencies, you know, by law, we have our specific roles under our National Disaster Management Law with, with uh, coordination of government. It really um, clears uh, roles and responsibilities, especially um, for uh, organizations like SAMO Red Cross, working uh, for the sake of our most vulnerable groups. Uh, we, we, we are happy because the data that we have shared around is actually informing everyone. And, and even with what um, communities have put aside as part of their response um, uh, law, you know, against uh, people going against um, their own protocols is, is actually uh, minimizing, uh, you know, uh, that power that they put put aside, you know, and, and accepting uh, the work, the humanitarian work and services done by the Red Cross, you know, in times of disasters and, 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 and through impacts of climate change, you know, the work that we do day in, day out. So we, we think that because of the good uh, infrastructure put in by our government, you know, leading everyone uh, through the laws and practice uh, in the work that we do, you know, is, is um, very much convenient uh, when disasters happen, you know, for all the organizations and responding agencies to play their respective roles in this sense. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's been really, really helpful. and and. The, the kind of the diversity in the ways that the data is being used, the way that you highlighted has been really informative. If I can keep with the same theme, Bisonte, um, um, you, you highlighted kind of, in, your, in one of your slides, you showed that governments are just one source of data collection. And, um, and I wanted to kind of come back to you to kind of draw the connection between data and policymaking and ask what IDMC is doing to support policymaking in the context of the kind of global level data that you gather and how the role of governments and whether they're involved in, in collecting data on IDP, uh, IDPs might affect the ways in which you engage with governments on the policy making aspect as well. If you can, uh, it would be great if you could keep your intervention to about two to three minutes so that we still have time to answer some of the questions that are coming in as well. Sure, no, sure. Uh, I'll keep it short, but, but uh, I, I think that at the global level, uh, displacement, disaster displacement, climate change related displacement has been a bit of an afterthought in policymaking, especially let's say like framework, the Paris Agreement. Like uh, if you actually read through these frameworks, uh, it, the, the word displacement is, is very modest. It's, 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 it's hidden, let's say, no? Uh, there is, however, a window of opportunity, and I think that this is where really data has changed the narrative and has changed policymaking in that regard. Um, because uh, thanks to these estimates that we are putting together from the very local level to the global level, there has been a change in, in narrative and there has been therefore a change in policymaking around this issue. And now we have a platform on disaster displacement. All UN agencies are really conscious about the fact that there is 
that climate uh, and that's related displacement is a major humanitarian and development issue. And I think that data has been really the driver of change in that regard. Um, and uh, how do we support government? Was basically uh, do conducting a series of diagnoses on 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 the, their data structures, on the the quality of the data, the gaps that they have, and we support uh, them in 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 really getting better estimates. And, try, and, and really, there's here at the global level an effort to really make this data interoperable. Because as I showed in my first in the first question and intervention I had, is really and Andrea highlighted as well. The issue of interoperability remains an issue. We are getting better at, at it uh, at all levels, I would say. But there's much more work to do, really. Uh, so this data, all these data sets, talk to each other. And that takes me to a last point that I think that is very insightful from what Tautala mentioned at the at the national level, is that for data to really inform policy and governments, you really need to have governance of the data itself. And this is really critical that, that at all levels we 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 think through you know, uh, uh, how these data systems should work, how they should talk to each other and really govern this data to make it useful. Because ultimately here we're talking about people that are being affected at a very local level, but responses uh, go uh, up to the local, uh, to the global, sorry. So it's everybody's business. And for that, I think that uh, it's critical to, to have this governance of data that is uh, so important. Uh, I'll leave it there and in case of questions, I'm happy to expand more. Great, Bisante, and that's really helpful. And I think that's the theme that's already been touched upon in many ways, and I think it's an important one to take away from this discussion, that the governance of data is kind of crucial to be able to do all the other things that we're, we're wanting to do with data and to inform evidence-based policies and practice. Kira, just over to you now, because maybe this is something that you can shed a little bit more insight on as well, not the governance of data, but good examples of where different actors have come together to collect data all the way through to policy making because you've been working on different projects in Africa and Latin America and the Pacific and the Caribbean. Are there good examples um, where different different stakeholders have come together, including governments, um, and they've stayed engaged throughout the process in, into policy making or program development? Over to you, Kira. And again, if you can, two to three minutes. Of course, it's an extremely complex question but I'll, I'll give it a shot to, to um, maybe highlight some, some points here. Yeah, I think what we um, can learn when we look at, at the policy making on climate and displacement is that um, often this topic falls in between um, the traditional lines of responsibility of different ministries. So if you look at um, the landscape of ministries, national ministries out there, you could think that uh, climate and displacement would be relevant for, for labor, for internal affairs, for external affairs, maybe for health, um, maybe for development ministries. So it's it's a topic that is really cross-cutting, um, um, but it's also, this also means, well, this is exciting in a way, it also means that it's, uh, it's very difficult for a singular ministry to take on responsibility for really progressing um, yeah, implementation of policies, for example. So um, I think this is um, this is important to understand when we talk about um, policy making and then also implementation of these policies. So um, we designed um, a project that um, was the East Africa Peru India Climate Capacities Project, which 
tried to synthesize the knowledge and build new knowledge on uh, climate change and migration, um, for example, in Peru and Tanzania. And there we started out with um, holding consultations with scientists and bringing in policymakers from different fields. And this was very successful because um, in the in the different countries, the knowledge gaps are very diverse, right? So many, maybe a country has a very good census system, um, um, but uh, lacks uh, data on a particular region, for example, or other challenges arise. So it was very good to understand uh, at the beginning what data is needed and also what, uh, what gaps exist, and then to carry on research um, in an area that, uh, that serves to, to close these gaps, obviously. Um, I think what, is, what we learned is that it's very important to um, listen to people on the ground, so to say, and try to bring um, people from the national level, people from the community level together, as well as um, scientists to exchange on um, these, these increasingly complex issues. And I think climate and displacement is, is just one of the many issues that, um, that are cross-cutting and that need the attention of several entities and um, several yeah, lines of responsibility. Um, so what policymakers can do is really to, to try to open up funding lines to increase spending on um, uh, strengthening streamlining data collection and analysis. Um, and what we did in the end with this project is we used the information that we, we gathered um, to inform adaptation policies. So to try to advise governments on national adaptation planning or um, more state level um, adaptation planning. And I think um, this is really the way to go to um, use the knowledge at hand, even if there are gaps um, still remaining. Um, my last remark here, and I keep it very brief, um, First, I want to give a shout out also to the International Conference on Migration Statistics that the IOM organized, and I know that Andrea was very much involved in. Um, and I think this was really a, a important, it's a really important platform to bring together different statistical offices um, and try to foster discussions on, um, yeah, kind of making common definitions for surveys um, to increase intercomparability. And of course, we as scientists and practitioners, we get very excited about uh, more data. <laughs> I, get I get very excited, excited about it, but I think we also have to remind ourselves that um, the, the more data we generate and the more we know, uh, the higher the risks also uh, get that this data could be abused. So I think we have to think of how to prevent this type of abuse as well, because I mean, in an ideal scenario, I remember talking to a policymaker in Vanuatu, I think saying like, I would like to know where the single mothers are that need particular help after a disaster. So I think it's a very valid concern that these um, may be a group that is particularly in need of uh, assistance um, after disaster strikes. So ideally better data would serve to inform, you know, an organization like the Red Cross to, to get this data and, and to be able to serve these maybe marginalized vulnerable communities. In the negative sense, of course, data could also be used to kind of um, exclude certain ethnic groups or certain other social groups from getting relief or from uh, getting access to migration routes. So I think um, we have to, to uh, when we ask for more data and especially more downscaled uh, data, 
I think we also have to be very aware that um, what it means if governments start following migratory movements all the time. So I think I just want to have one word of caution here um, that it can also lead to abuse. Um, and while I think it will be necessary to have better data on, on, on displacement, for example, I think we also have to set up institutions that are resilient towards, um, yeah, towards abuse in this type of system. So I think this is uh, an important issue. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Kira, and you've hit a lot of important points, starting off with the importance of having a whole host of different agencies and actors engaged right at the beginning, given the cross-cutting nature of the, of the issue. Um, Andrea, we're getting towards the end, and a few questions have come in as well. So I might just integrate the last question I had to you with, uh, with some of the questions that have, that have come in already as well. Um, and, and it is really kind of having listened to this discussion, where do we go next? What do you think are the key priorities in terms of filling some of the data gaps and using those data gaps and some of the examples that Kira has highlighted to inform policy making? Um, and as you reflect on that, just one of the questions from the audience is about how um, in comparison to e-mobility, we have relatively more data on different forms of mobility, whether it's internal displacement, relocation, or even um, cross-border displacement and migration. We know much less about the scale of immobility. Um, and so if you can also, as you think about where we go next, think about immo immobility and what we need to do to address that, that gap. Over to you. Thank you. Um, so let me start with the last question on immobility. I think it's a very complex uh, question because when it comes to people that are immobile, of course, we're looking both at people that are forced to be immobile. In some cases, we're also looking at people that uh, decide to remain in a place where they're highly exposed, for instance, to a range of environmental climatic stressors. The reason why I think this is really difficult is twofold. First, because it's really, it's a question I looked at also in my uh, previous academic life. It's really difficult to determine who is actually uh, trapped and immobile in a place when you actually try to look at who are we talking about? Because everybody, in a way, has a way out uh, of a place, no matter how difficult it is. So it's really hard to quantify people that can be considered forcedly immobile or trapped just empirically difficult. The other issue is that it's, uh, our policy making tends to be organized around the geographical scale. So you have different administrative levels and people that are in a specific place have a number of, of needs that be, uh, need to be addressed through policy making. And it's not always easy to understand what are some of the specific needs associated with the fact that somebody may be trapped in a place because of the way policy making. Anyway, we're short sometimes, so I can't elaborate too much, but it's a very complicated issue. And going back to the, uh, to, to the point, and uh, as briefly as I can, I think I see two priorities uh, moving forward. And this is based on, we recently completed uh, six national and one regional assessment on migration environment, disasters, and climate change data in the Eastern Caribbean, from which I personally learned a lot. I think there are two key lessons learned that I would draw and I think can guide uh, you know, our thinking moving forward. The first one is that there are lots of opportunities to make better use of existing data. And this can, these, these have two elements to it. The first one is we can adjust standardized templates 
And with very minor changes, we can have a big impact. Just to give a concrete example, I, I was in Dominica for the launch of this uh, regional report, and I sat down with a colleague from a national statistical office who had a, showed me a census question. And one of the questions had, was about, you know, why did you move to this country? And the, it had the option of disasters slash pandemic. And I just said, why don't you have, you know, disaster as one option and pandemic as another option? And they changed it. And it, it's a very concrete example. But, you know, there are a lot of small things that one can do to enhance understanding. The other thing is bring different uh, actors together. This is a, a broader issue. My experience is I've worked on this topic for several years, but only about three years from the IOM perspective. In my opinion, a lot of developments have happened in the climate change world at the global level, the climate change negotiations. But unfortunately, my, no, unfortunately. But migration policy is mostly made in other policy spaces, especially the ministries for interior who decide who can enter the rules for entry, stay, exit from a country. And I think uh, only more recently, especially with the Global Compact on Migration, these actors have been brought together. Also at the national level, absolutely crucial. Last point is, yes, make better use of existing data in terms of processes and in terms of uh, you know, the, the, the tools we use but also look into uh, what new sources of data can do, because I do think that especially if you look at big data, you can have mobile phone data, you can look at satellite images, et cetera, et cetera, social media data. There's a lot of potential, although uh, just to conclude, uh, I fully share Kira's uh, point about there are lots of data privacy issues to be taken into, into account that should not be downplayed, when, especially when looking at data that are basically owned by private rather than um, public uh, companies that in a way can be less uh, scrutinized by the public. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Andrea. And that's quite a, a good note to kind of end, end the session. But I have one more question that I could perhaps pose to any one of you. Um, and if Andre, you haven't spoken for a while, or Tala, if you'd like to take it as well. Um, and it's how, how we can use data to better communicate these issues. and and what the opportunities are around climate change, displacement and migration. So the media discourse is often at odds with the science. And equally, the data on these issues is quite complicated. So how do we effectively communicate the nuances of, of data um, in order to correct some of the misinformation that surrounds these issues on, on migration and other forms of human mobility? I don't know, Bisante or Tala or Andrea or, or, or Kira, who, who would like to take that question? All of you can in the two minutes that we have left. I can, I can, I can probably answer that regarding communication. I, I, I think that it is true. It is, it is we have, we're dealing with a bit of complicated metrics, full uh, disclosure here. Uh, we're, we're reviewing this because we are seeing that there is a, a constant misinterpretation of our data. And uh, especially, it's true that media reports uh, tend to get it wrong and inflate many of these figures, inflate many of these trends, do direct causality because it's just beyond the metric, right? It's really the drawing direct causality with climate change without actually uh, applying the right nuances. So um, I think that first, uh, a first uh, way of addressing that would be to really review the terms to make them more kind of accessible to a general audience. And second, I think that um, we should, we could all benefit because uh, it's not only media, but we could all benefit from really having more media trainings, trainings to media to really explain to them 
the results of our reports, the results of our findings, because as Kira was saying, we're dealing here with a, a lot of data, a lot of information that is very difficult to digest and to connect given the complexity of the topic. So I think that having, like putting more efforts in really doing these media trainings will definitely add value. Thank you, Tante. And Tala, I think you, you were saying... Yeah, yeah I, just want to, I, I just want to add, you know, um, in the usefulness of data, especially uh, to inform Red Cross work through um, awareness, making sure we provide uh, effective awareness, and our advocacy role uh, to our governments, you know, for the sake of the most vulnerable groups, as well as, as activities or actions, you know, in accordance with uh, the challenges that we are facing. What we haven't really discussed are some of the humanitarian issues aside from my question, because within that there's um, a lot of issues on gender-based violence. And, 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 and this data collection, you know, with the work that Samuel Red Cross does with uh, its communities, and to ensure that community members starting from, um, from uh, councils, you know, of chiefs, down to uh, groups of women, groups of able men, and you know, dividing themselves into uh, respective committees to ensure that they uh, come up with uh, village plans, and 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 even um, you know, looking at um, doing um, referral pathways. You know, if they come across uh, such issues, you know, within their own communities. And this is where um, the uses of, of data collection, you know, making sure that uh, when, when we're into um, advocating for such problems, you know, we have to have at least some backups, you know, to ensure that, um, you know, uh, what we're doing is, is more uh, legalized and, and all of that. But yes, uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we need to look at our awareness, you know, and, and, and our actions as well as our advocacy roles. Thank you. Thank you, Tala. And Andrea, the last word to you. I see your hand up. Thank you. Just very quickly, a, a reflection. Um, I think another problem in this space is the fact that the quantification of data around this topic tend to be used mostly in media outlets to show the magnitude of the issue and therefore how important it is. So it tends to be almost exclusively an advocacy point, which is normal because obviously it is a way to also show a human face of climate change, for instance. And not enough is done to show, uh, to, to stress the fact that if you cannot count something, you cannot address it. And evidence-based policies need to be based on evidence. And so this is not just to show the importance of the topic. It's really that the foundation of effective policies is a better understanding. So I think that angle is sometimes missing in the debate. Thank you. Perfect way to finish. So thank you so much, Andrea, and thank you so much to all of the panelists, to uh, Vicente, Tala, Kira, thank you very much. And thank you to the audience for those engaging and important questions. Um, what I want to do now is just tell you a little bit more about the next sessions that are coming your way. So the next conference panel will be on planned relocation, which will be in the morning tomorrow, Australia time. Registrations are still open, so please do encourage others to sign up and, and join. Um, if, and also do so yourselves if you haven't, um, if you're thinking of listening to that session. And we really do hope to see you at another Caldor 21 session very soon. So thank you very much and goodbye.